Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Salt Lake 2002 Retrospective Podcast, a back-of-house look at the planning and delivery of the Salt Lake 2002 Olympic Winter and Paralympic Winter Games, as told by the very people who organized them. I'm Christian Napier, and I am delighted to be joined this new year, 2021, uh, by Scott Givens, uh, who is uh, well-known and has a, uh, an incredible reputation for developing and delivering uh, really incredible audience experiences in this space and in other spaces. And um, Scott, it's a real honor to have you on. I'm really grateful for you taking the time to join us. How are you doing? I'm fantastic, Christian. And, and as I have said to you, it's so cool. You're capturing a bit of our collective history. I mean, I can tell you so many of us look back on Salt Lake and say, what an amazing period in our lives, not just career, but our lives. And, and it's fun to be a part of the journey. Well, it was a it was a fun journey. It was a long time ago. Memories fade. And so I'm grateful that you've uh, come on here to help refresh our memories and jog our memories of Salt Lake 2002. But before we get to the 2002 games, which is really the topic of this podcast, I want to I want to get a little picture of what life is like for you present day. You know, so where are you joining us from and uh, what are you currently working on? We're, uh, I'm based just outside of uh, Monterey, California, um, and started a, a company called Five Currents with a, a number of friends from the Salt Lake era. Still have a, a number of them working with us um, in in what we do, and and kind of Salt Lake was a transition point for me in my career. It it helped me open a new chapter. And, and we do a, a variety of big event productions. Uh, in Salt Lake, I, I had responsibility for the ceremonies, uh, among a few other things. And and uh, we do big uh, event productions worldwide. And we have uh, a large number of ceremonies that are, are on our books for the next couple of years. Post-COVID, you know, it's been an exceptionally difficult time for people in our industry through 2020 and early 21, but uh, we're starting to see a little glimpse of the sun uh, rising here uh, a, a little later this year. And, and as that goes, um, human beings will be back to gathering and, and we're in the business of creating some big gatherings. I want to dive into that a little bit more, Scott. Um, yeah, COVID definitely has devastated our industry. It's been extremely difficult. We're finding people coming up with all kinds of creative ways to deal with it from a ceremonies and a production perspective. How have you, what's the word pivoted? I don't know, or, or adapted to this crazy new environment that we're operating in. You know, we, when we started five currents back in 2005, um, uh, I started the company we were a virtual company back then. We didn't have a whole lot of money. We were just ragtag and starting out. And so people lived wherever they wanted to live, worked from home. And we've continued that culture. For, for us, we've been working virtually for 15 plus years. COVID brought a change in our production and our delivery. But the way we talk to each other, the way uh, our team collaborates remained largely the same. What we did see was, was you know, huge impact to delivery and to, 
to a large number of our team that that was working on delivering projects uh, that went into hiatus, and all of those projects just delayed a year. They 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 moved from 2020 to to late 21 or 22, um, and we saw that shift. So part of what we've done is just um, you know kind of. I would say hibernate, contract a little bit in our our workflow. Um, kept you know our, our uh, as many people uh, on the company safe and healthy and and working as best as they they could, and we're preparing for what we think will be the the kind of pendulum to swing that that human beings do love to gather post COVID. People want to go out to eat. They'll want to go to a concert. They'll want to go to a big gathering and see some of the really big gatherings that we do. And we think that pendulum will swing hard the other way when it's safe for us all to be in the same space. And so a lot of our preparation over these past few months has been starting to get ready for that transition, do everything we can do remotely in preparation for for the time when we can gather again, and and again we're seeing you know the the vaccines are coming and the the potential is there. It's still a ways yet to, to go, but we're seeing the the you know kind of glint of the sun at the end of this long dark tunnel is coming. And I'm always the optimist that people will gather again. We will be able to do some of the things we did before. Well, I agree with that. And I hope that this pendulum swings safely sooner rather than later, uh, because so many people have been impacted by this industry uh, or by COVID uh, that are into this industry. And and so I think that's well said. And, and you know, it, it's it's so hard. It has been absolutely so hard on our industry. Uh, you know, uh, I, I will say we went from you know, delivering a couple very big projects to the zero. This is the first year in our history where we've not had a production, uh, you know, deliver, uh, go through the the delivery phase. And we had a couple really big things that affected so many people. But, you know, the 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 hope is, you know, that, that we're all getting through this tough time and banding together and, and that, um, you know, we'll we'll see that swing back the other way, and and humanity will come together. We'll see a great Tokyo twenty twenty uh, this year, and and the many things that follow. And one other thing that I want to ask you about about on this is uh, you just mentioned that you assemble uh, teams uh, to put together and deliver these these experiences, and. Those teams are comprised of a, a core team of uh, full-time staff, but you also rely, as all production companies do, they, they rely heavily on freelancers and independent contractors. And I'm just curious um, what you have witnessed or you have heard from the people that you work with on a regular basis. You've you've got a, a, a cadre of of uh, freelancers and contractors and professionals that you've worked with for a long time and you have longstanding relationships. And I'm just curious what their experience has been like as they've been going through this pandemic. You know, Christian, I mean, it's, it's been super, I mean, devastating would be the word that I would have. So many people, uh, 
you know, our company hasn't taken, you know, any new project revenue in, in 12 months. And thankfully we were healthy coming into this and, you know, been able to, to navigate, but, but that same kind of impact has extended to the freelance and the supplier community. I think there'll be a, a, a significant shift. I think some people have gone on to other uh, adventures because they, they needed to, you know, that, that the period of the uh, downturn and the, you know, lockdowns and, and just not traveling. We're in a business that does require travel. I think some people have, have just fundamentally had to change their path. Some suppliers and, and part of our extended family that makes us successful, some of them will not be the same. They'll either be smaller or, or some may have gone away in this. I, I think there'll be a profound change. I also think there's there's opportunity we've spent a lot of time in the last three or four months because we're preparing for that pendulum to swing uh, the other way you know i we're not in the space that you can do a virtual event you know if you're doing an opening ceremony we can't do that virtually that happens physically and and so we've been spending a lot of time preparing and part of what that's done is it it's let us open our eyes to other talent and other people that we want to collaborate with. I have many, many friends and colleagues that have worked for Cirque, uh, Cirque du Soleil. It's, a, it's an amazing group of talented artists. They've had their hardship. And so a lot of those, the, the people that, that were perhaps full-time at Cirque are no more, uh, no more full-time. They're available to come and help us in our journey and interested. And so you know, the, we're, we're always looking for that silver lining. And, and part of this, while I think the, the land is shifting and things are shifting, I also think there's opportunity for us to meet new people and encounter new people that, that want to be on this journey. You might want to go and work on a crazy project in a, in a far off place. And, and we've been spending a lot of time kind of investing in that, um, you know, to, to kind of keep ourselves fresh and moving ahead. So, so I think it, it, everything in, in life has balance. Uh, uh, you know, I often kid my nor my normal path is to travel about half the time I've been home for almost this one straight year. That means I'm going to be gone a lot here as this comes back and, and, uh, you know, everything comes into balance. So, you know, I'm hoping all the great people that are looking for opportunities are starting to find them. I think many, many more are going to open as the weeks unfold here in the start of 21. And, and, um, and hopefully we'll all be, um, you know, uh, you know, having the opposite problem of a good pendulum swing of just a little bit too much to do, but so happy to be in that place than, than where we were a year ago. All right. Well, to kind of put a capper on this uh, pendulum swinging uh, light at the end of the tunnel, uh, look ahead to 2021. I, I did have a question, which I sent you in an email that's sure. kind of related to that. And it's, uh, what's the one thing that you want to do in 2021 that you could not do in 2020? Well, I, I'll, I'll tell you, anyone that knows me, I'm not a hugger, but I want to hug 
I want to hug people. So, so for those of you that are my close friends, watch out because there might be a little bit more hugging uh, coming in 21 than, than you've ever experienced in your life. It's just nice to be back where we can be with our fellow man, uh, be with humanity. And, and I mean that in a, in a, in a, a, just a true sense, you know, simple as it is, human contact, humans love to gather. That's what it's just part of our very deep, deep, deep uh, psyche. And, and I look forward to being able to, to gather and, and to hug people and to be in contact. Well, I think that's very well said, just as the pendulum might be swinging for us as an industry, it can also swing for us individually. And we can swing from a social or physically distanced uh, relationships back to um, uh, becoming a lot more closer uh, to each other. So I think yeah. that's very well said. Very well said. Okay. My last question for you before we dive into Salt Lake 2002, which was on my list of questions for you, you, you are very well known. Uh, so there may not be much that's not known about you, but is there something that most people don't know about you? You know, uh, a fun fact that you want to share that's uh, not commonly known about Scott Givens. Well, I, I'll give you, I'll give you one. I thought about this and I'll give you one from Salt Lake. Um, in Salt Lake, I was almost fired. And I probably should have been. Um, I loved the party band uh, Bare Naked Ladies. And I knew they were going to be perfect for Olympic Medals Plaza in our, our downtown Salt Lake venue. And they're the squarest guys ever. They're Canadian. They have just fun, get together, dance, have a great time. And they have a pretty darn provocative name. So we, we called them on our talent spreadsheets, BNL. Um, and when we booked them, we had to sign a contract uh, with Bare Naked Ladies to perform in the center of Salt Lake. And I'll tell you, it wasn't a good day. But in the end, I, I'll never forget Fraser Bullock telling me that it was the funnest night he'd had at Olympic Medals Plaza. And it was just a great kickoff. So, um, you know, I, I, I like to push for the right idea and the right thing. And, and um, sometimes... It gets you, hopefully it always gets you to the right result if you have the right intent. <laughs> well, I really appreciate you bringing that up, uh, Scott. So many people on the podcast have talked about that Metals Plaza concert, Bare Naked Ladies, as being a really one of the highlights, uh, one of, a, a fantastic memory of the games. And I, I understand that it was controversial at the time because of the name, uh, but I'm glad that you uh, stuck with it because it definitely paid off. It was a lot of fun to see. <laughs> Uh, seeing yeah. up there in their comedian speed skating uniform and <laughs> right, right and they're the squarest guys and and you know canadian speed skating they got into the olympia olympics they were they were just so much fun and and you know i loved where salt lake went to in that period it it was the funnest time that i can ever remember in any city and, and it was just a, I mean, Salt Lake downtown, the sport venues, everything, the vibe of, of the, you know, that great place was just unbelievable. I'll never forget that. Well, that's a fitting introduction to our, to our topic, which is Salt Lake 2002. So let's hop back in the Wayback Machine here and have a look. What I want to do is actually start from the beginning, or maybe it's actually before the beginning. So why don't you give us a sense of what you were doing before 
the Salt Lake 2002 games came calling. And just how did you find your way to Salt Lake City? You know, I'd always been, uh, you know, a huge Olympic fan. I, I at university, I, I started a small business um, called Stadium Stunts. I designed card stunts and I had done Super Bowls and and all kinds of things. I was the card guy. And I got to to see how producers operated, how good people treated people. And I was in Atlanta in 1996, and I was designing all of the audience stunts for the opening uh, closing ceremony at, at Atlanta. And I saw this job called director of ceremonies. This guy kept coming into the office to meet the team, and, and he had the title director of ceremonies for the organizing committee. At the time, I didn't know what an organizing committee was. And I just thought, that's the coolest job ever. And and so I sent a note off to the the, the CEO then of, of the games, um, you know, just kind of crazy Hail Mary email. And lo and behold, it got passed down. And I got a call to help volunteer to put together the ceremonies department and budgets and organization and what was required and what was needed. And I knew an awful lot about it. Um, and that eventually turned into when they recruited for that position, there are a lot of people that were more qualified for me. I'd been in the industry for a long time, but there are a lot of people that were more qualified, but because I had put the time in and I helped with uh, a number of events, I'd helped with the thousand uh, can't remember the the launch of the mascots and a few other things in the early days, um, and and they they brought me in as director of ceremonies, and I made this kind of transition from being the card guy and working for all the producers and knowing how to produce and learning what a good producer did to an organizing committee role. And Christian, just a funny story: the vendor that was working on the card stunts for the opening ceremony in Salt Lake, um, had some trouble. And, and in my spare time, I designed the card stunts for the opening closing ceremony uh, of Salt Lake back in the day. And I don't know how I got it done on top of everything else, but I moonlit as for no compensation, but I moonlit as the, the card guy one last time in Salt Lake 2002. I think that was the last one that I did. All right. Well, that was a fantastic story and an introduction. And there's a lot to unpack there. Number one, how did you have spare time? <laughs> uh, number two, what was the timing? You know, when was it actually that you came over uh, as the director of ceremonies? And then number three, you mentioned in Atlanta that you saw this guy, director of ceremonies, you thought that was the coolest thing. But what does a director of ceremonies actually do? If you can give us a bit of an insight into the role, that would be awesome. So I know I just asked a lot of questions, but number one, how did you find spare time? Uh, number two, what was the timing? of you coming over to the organizing committee here in Salt Lake. And number three, if you can just give us a little bit of uh, insight into what the role of director of ceremonies entails. The, the, um, the, the answer to how do you find more time? I'm sure everyone can tell you is you just sleep less. And, and I'm, I'm not sure there was anyone in the home stretch of Salt Lake 2002 that was getting a, uh, what would be considered a proper night's sleep. Um, you know, it was a job that had to be done. I had the skills. I had the experience to do it. Uh, we wanted it in the opening ceremony. It was simply a job that had to be done. And you just find the time. Everyone steps up and and everyone in Salt Lake uh, 
it was one of the most amazing things because I think everyone stepped up to a higher level of performance. And so you just found the time. Uh, so that, that's the first one. The, the second one, I came over in uh, – 1999, um, and, and I want to say it was spring 99, Mid had come in three months-ish before me. Um, so I was kind of part of that transition into Mitt's leadership. Um, and he brought me in originally, or I, I was hired in as director of ceremonies. I didn't meet Mitt in the first interview. I was a director, uh, but I was director of ceremonies, which was looking after you know, obviously opening, closing, Metals Plaza, sport presentation that was happening, or sport production, as we called it, that was happening in the games. And and I was kind of one of three big creative departments. And and because it was opening and closing, that was on Mitt's profile, on the CEO's profile. And I got to, to interact with Mitt a little bit. And when there was some leadership change, I think about a year later, I moved into the managing director role, which was managing director of creative. And I had the, the creative, the look department, the, um, the creative group that was kind of logo and publications and brand, Libby's group, Libby Highlands group. And I had ceremonies. I retained ceremonies. All right. Well, that's an awful lot to have on your plate. <laughs> and I, and I, I want to get into that in a moment, but before I do... Of course, uh, you you did the work in Atlanta. You've mentioned that you did work on Super Bowls. So it sounds to me like you were doing things all over the place. But then this requires, I guess, a relocation to Salt Lake City. Did you did you end up having to move here? And if so, what was your first impression of Salt Lake? I loved Salt Lake. I lived in Salt Lake for almost six years. Uh, of course, I did move. Uh, totally adopted the lifestyle. I I loved living in Utah. I lived in Park City, uh, loved to ski. And I remember like one of the funnest things in the early days, Fraser Bullock had a, a rule. He called it the six, six inch powder rule. And it was basically, if there was six inches of new snow, you didn't have to call in. You just had to work late and you could go ski for a little bit in the morning and come do your work. Um, and it was the funnest. I just remember like what an amazing place to live uh, I could ski in the morning. I could go work, you know, a 10, 12 hour day still and do what I needed to do. And, and, and it was just in a great culture. It was in a great place. So you became a, a, a ski bum slash uh, managing director <laughs> of creative. I could as much skiing as I could get done. If there was a reason to have a, 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 a venue tour at park city, we used to call them to go on a venue tour, uh, out to see the, the mountains as, as often as I could within the context of getting my work done. That was, that was part of it. Uh, you know, we look at back at that and it sounds fun, but, for Frazier to say something like that, the six inch uh, powder rule, I find that quite interesting because it shows a a bit of faith in people that they'll actually do what they need to do, you know, just allow them to do it the way that they need to do it. B uh, would be something that's more focused on outcome and not so heavily driven by process. Uh, I'm just wondering if you could speak to that a little bit, because I find this six inch powder rule quite interesting. You know that was one of the unique things about Salt Lake. Our leadership in Mitt and Fraser 
their partnership and and I'm sure many many people have spoken to it but their style created a culture and I felt like everyone rose up a level I, I, you know I was producing at a higher level more efficiently you know broader span bigger responsibility but but delivering at a higher level than I had ever done and by the way everyone around me was doing the same thing and and that was you know part of what I experienced working with with Mitt and Fraser, they were enormously trusting. Yes, uh, you know, I, I, I used to say about uh, Mitt, I mean, Mitt loved to play with the creative and he loved to get in and he always had ideas and he was always kind of pushing us to do better, you know, and, and it was, and he enjoyed it. And, and he was an amazingly empowering boss. Um, and, you know, and he he was all about kind of hiring what I would say are wickedly talented people, you know, to just hire simply the most talented person that you can and then let them do what they can do. Get out of their way, you know, let them do what they do. And, and that was Mitt's approach. And then you had Fraser, who was and I was a dual report. I had an unusual job that I. It, I reported to you know Grant Thomas for a period, and then as I got managing director, I reported to Mitt, and then toward the closer part of the games because I had so many operational things, I was a dual report, equal report to Fraser and Mitt. And Fraser was a different management style to, to Mitt, but but I loved the way he could watch you know the details and. And he'd go super deep into something. If there was an issue or a little bit of smoke that might become a fire, he could go super deep into that issue, find a resolution, and they could pull right back out and and let you you do what you do. He was fundamentally trusting of the people around him, but he had this kind of ability to to dig in and really sort out the root cause. And so you had this kind of combination of mitt after wickedly talented people and Fraser with a broad vision and ability to, to solve conflict and tunnel in when he needed to, but not micromanaging, not constant, and really having the judgment to know when to do that. Um, it created this environment where we had great leadership. And then I think the whole talent base in the organizing committee in general rose up a level because of that kind of duality of the way they led the organization. Well, it's really interesting to hear you say that. Uh, from what I gather, Mitt and Fraser basically created a foundation uh, upon which you and your colleagues that were in leadership positions in the organizing committee could then flourish and really take things to the next level. And that actually takes me to my next question. So you step into this thing in 1999 with the background that you have. So how do you approach your job? You know, you say, okay, well, what do we want to accomplish here? What do we want to achieve? And how are we going to go about doing it? In this Olympic space, there's always a lot of pressure to do things that are innovative, things that represent your local culture, things that might be viewed by the general population as trying to, to one-up what was done before. So you come into this having some background experience in Olympic Games and major events with an opportunity to put your stamp on it. So what approach do you take to kind of creating your strategy, building out your team, developing your planning, and uh, so on and so forth? You know, I, 
I, I would say a couple things and, and first to speak to the creative and the strategic side of it. You know, I've always liked simple yet pervasive, you know, implementations, ideas. Like, you don't have to make it overly complex, but but do it really well. And, and I remember working with Mitt and evolving this idea of what a game's slogan would be, you know. And, and we had this, the slogan, uh, well, well we, we knew we wanted one. And we, we had a number of conversations kind of early as I was coming into my role about what that would be. And, and an amazingly brilliant uh, creative Gordon Bowen came up with the phrase, light the fire within. It actually started as ignite the fire within. That lasted 24 hours. It became light the fire within. And that was w- one of my criteria for that phrase is that it, it had to be more than just a, a slogan, right? We didn't want it just on the banner or just on the adver- advertisement. I wanted something that we could manifest in the very meaning of the games and something that spoke to the, the people of Salt Lake and, and the dominant religion and, and you know had a, a kind of special meaning to the way people of Salt Lake see themselves it spoke to the Olympians. It spoke to, you know, and, and their ability to inspire us. It, it spoke to all of us that aspired to be uh, Olympic in our journey. And, and so we developed this phrase. Gordon gave us the phrase. But then we took that and, and said, well, wait a minute. Let's drive that through everything we do creatively. Let's, let's bring that to, to life in a way that before the games had never done, games had had slogans, but let's make that a vision statement, a mission statement for the creative things we do. And so the ceremony should speak to it. The cauldron should be designed like out of glass so you see the fire within and you can see it for 50 miles. It's inspiring. We should have a cityscape program. Happy to talk about that. Um, that, that changes so kind of one of the things we decided to make our games different and to make them uniquely appropriate to Salt Lake was to speak to the Olympics power to inspire us and and people's power to inspire one another and and to drive that through every single decisions that we could. And I, I can give you so many that, that people may not have noticed and and People, ones that people would have noticed the the cauldron being made of glass, but but having that rigor gave us a really unique perspective to think about the creative and the creative things we were going to do in that time that was two thousand two. Well, I'm really glad that you brought up this slogan, "Light the fire within." It's kind of funny because I, I know that sometimes people would kid about it or make little jokes about indigestion oh, yeah. or things like this. But but um, but actually, there are a couple of elements of the slogan that I found quite interesting and and inspiring. Number one, it's in active voice. It's a verb, you know, yeah, it was a challenge. Uh, so it, it, we wanted it to challenge you. You should do this. Yeah, exactly. It was on purpose. You should light the fire within. And, and, the, and the other one is it, it's a, it's very personal. 
you know, sometimes, and this isn't to disparage anybody else's slogans or anything like that, but sometimes they can be very, you know, global or they can be ethereal or, but, but this one, it just kind of goes right to the center. And, and so, you know, on those levels, uh, an active voice and also something that could be very individual, it could be internalized individually to something that I could do uh, to kind of live those Olympic values, reflect that spirit, uh, become my better self. I, I, I actually found that slogan quite inspiring. And, you know, everyone has a different take. And, and there were plenty of jokes and some amazing. I still have a cartoon on my wall, a series of Deseret News cartoons about Light the Fire Within uh, that, that, you know, was, of course, everyone has the joke uh, uh, and everyone pokes fun of it. But at the same time, you know, it, it, we knew, I knew we had something right. And, and I remember Mitt, Mitt telling me when we were getting, closer to the games. It's like, that's our story. We're sticking to it. We're not, you know, we, we, we put our bet, you know, we're, we're not backing down and we're doing it to singular exclusion of other things. The Olympic games is many things, but the fundamental meaning of light the fire within is to inspire one another to be better and to be Olympic. And that we did that to the exclusion of other creative ideas. Sure. We had many other brand things we did, but the main creative one was this light the fire within. I knew we had it right when we started seeing education programs and teachers using it in classrooms in Salt Lake. And we started hearing the media quoted back to us. Salt Lake had no media itself. The organizing committee had a very small amount of money to sell tickets locally in, in the Salt Lake market. That was the only advertising we did as a committee. Sure, the sponsors had a lot and there were other forms of media, but the committee itself had a very small budget and volunteers, I'm, I'm sorry, and, and recruit volunteers. We had a little money for that. But but when we saw this start to, to manifest itself through other voices that were watching Salt Lake and saying they wanted to be a part of it and use Light the Fire Within in their messaging, then we knew we had something quite special and, and we just used that to unify our creative. If we're going to design a cauldron and sure we had to have a cauldron. Well, ours was, was the embodiment of the theme, light the fire within Bob Finley and the gang that worked on the cauldron. They, they had to embody that, that theme in the most iconic piece of design and architecture that, that a games creates, you know, which is the cauldron itself. Well, you talked about the team there. You clearly couldn't do all this work by yourself with the exception of, uh, the cards, uh, which you did <laughs> when you had spare time, uh, moonlighting, but, uh, you had to put together a team. And, and so I'm, I'm curious about how you went about putting together that team and some of the relationships that were forged there in Salt Lake with some of the really interesting, inspiring, funny people that you worked with. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the team that you assembled and, and some of the great characters that you worked with there in Slock? You know, I, there were, I had three direct reports that, well, you just have to start with, with those together. I had Libby Highland, who was head of, of brand and creative publications. Can't remember her exact title but a, a brilliant creative thinker. And, and she, she was, you know, just an anchor in the design vision of, of Salt Lake. And, and I used to say she did everything smaller than, than a bread basket. So anything small Libby designed, she had the metals and, and uh, 
uh, not personally, but her team, she had a big hand in the medals. Um, but, but, uh, Libby had that. And then I, Bob Finley, who had look at the games and he was doing everything massive scale. Bob had the cauldron, cityscape, the banners, the back of bleacher program, any of the big installations. And Bob was, was amazing and, and had a, an amazing team around him that, that came. And third was, was Sarah Wiseman. And, you know, long, Sarah and I have a long history. She was uh, my first boss gave me one of my, I think my first professional job um, back in the day. And so Sarah and I had been together and for the longest time, Mitt wanted me to keep ceremonies. You know, when I was promoted to managing director and took on, took on the broader scope, he wanted me to keep a close eye on ceremonies. He used to tell me I could spend 90%. I had to spend 90% of my time on ceremonies and just a little on the other things. It wasn't possible. There were a lot of other things that had to happen. But I was able to bring Sarah in from the outside when when I was tapped to to go to a broader scope. And Sarah's one of the the most gentle, beautiful people I know. Uh, uh, you know, great manager, and and so she looked after the day to day aspects of the ceremonies group. And you know, if you get three really good, incredibly passionate um, uh, folks, you know, I. They they did they and their teams and I think we had about a thousand people working in creative functions when you count the ceremony team, a uh, thousand professionals uh, working on our projects. But you know it started with those three um, you know deputies that that each led a, a pretty sizable scope. In addition to having your your core team of uh, full time staff there. You're a ceremonies producer now. I mean, uh, typically for these major events, you, you've got this local organizing committee that is working with or partnering with a with a production company. And so I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about that. I, I, I know I didn't really have that in my list of questions, but you just talking about this made me think of it. And and so uh, what was that like collaborating with the uh, production company to deliver uh, what many consider to be a really outstanding opening and closing ceremony of the games. You know, it was amazing. I, 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 we did a tender, you know, we went through a very formal process. Um, I remember there were seven or eight finalists that came through the tender, uh, Dick Clark, you know, other, other, you know, great producers came through and, and Don Misher and Don Misher productions came through and, I remember I was I was an independent judge, but I had worked for Don in Atlanta '96. I was one of his uh, production team uh, in in '96 in, in Atlanta, and you know it was such a, an amazing journey for me to go from from you know being one of quite a large number of people that worked on a big summer ceremony to being the hiring uh, organizing committee executive a few years later. And when we went through the tender, we hired Don and, and his team and Kenny Ortega, Jeff Bennett, David Goldberg, an amazing group. And, and so we were a super active client with, with Don and Don would, and the creative team would, you know, kind of bake the ideas and they would come and present them to Mitt and Fraser and Gordon and, and, you know, a host of us, we had a little committee that they would come and present. And then in between, I remember Mitt just pushing me to be all over it. 
I would go to LA and participate in some of the creative sessions with Don and his team. And we were just driving this idea that there had to be a red thread through the ceremony that that all of the segments had to link. Of course, it had a tie back to light the fire within. And, you know, and, and we created a, a child of light and children of light that, that were part of that ceremony. We were an active client and kind of the, the rudder, uh, Don's team, you know, came up with the ideas, but we were the rudder and the judge kind of helping say, okay, that's right. Now we've got it right. Let's, let's execute, let's deliver that segment. And that's a lot of what I do now, Christian. We, we hire amazing creative uh, forces, great brains, uh, big thinkers, amazing production talent that work with us. And, and I help steer that, that I help to, to those teams know when they've got it right, when I think it's ready to present to the client or put on the stage and deliver to the world. I, I, I love that kind of role of, of, you know, having a bit of sense of where the, the ship needs to go and, and where we need to, to take it and then helping to, to bring everyone on that journey to get to that point. They may find their own path and that's what's important in a creative journey, but, but kind of knowing the, what the end result needs to feel like and help steer us to get to that point. Did that in Salt Lake and learned that in Salt Lake. And I've been fortunate to do it, you know, over, over my, my journey subsequent. All right. Well, let's talk about steering that ship. Uh, sometimes <laughs> it's not easy, right? It's like turning an oil tanker. And, and so that takes me to my next question for you. Ceremonies can be challenging. Uh, ceremonies can be very expensive. They can require a lot of budget and a lot of resources. The creative ideas that you have may be technically challenging to pull off. And so I'm curious about some of the challenges. If you could talk about some of the challenges that you may have faced, whether they be technical challenges or creative challenges or organizational challenges or financial challenges, and what were some of the, I don't know, innovative solutions that you found to overcome some of those challenges? You know, I'll, I'll t I can give you a, a couple, but I'm going to start with one that's not ceremonies. And that was the cityscape program. You know, we, we went, the, the look at the games program went through a, a huge journey in terms of budget. Salt Lake, we had economic challenges, you know, that there was a period where Mitt and Fraser really had to focus on the must have things that's staging sport, making sure that the venues are, are proper, you know, that, that all of that's done. And the dressing of the venues really took a hit in that period. The budget was, decimated, you know, I think got down to a couple hundred thousand dollars at one point, um, which, which for the kind of span and the size of the city is, is very, very small, as big as Salt Lake. And, and so Bob Finley had this idea and Bob's team that instead of doing a bunch of little banners on the city streets, Salt Lake streets are enormously wide. They're, you know, built to turn a horse carriage around. They're, they're huge, wide boulevards. Even the, what's considered a small street is super wide. And, and so doing these tiny little banners, we thought wouldn't have an impact. And the team came up with this idea for Cityscape, which was to put giant murals. You know, digital printing was just coming into to form at this time. You were able to print these massive murals and sections and put them on a building. And 
we we decided we were going to do that. We pitched Mitt and Fraser. We showed some renderings, but the practical reality was was crazy. We had to negotiate with every building, three stories and up, for the rights to either put the banner on their building or to block others because we couldn't have an ambush marketer come in the middle of it. And I just remember coming into Bob. And by the end of the day, Bob would talk me out of it and say, we just can't do that. It's just too hard. We're not going to get all these buildings, technical issues, money issues. And I'd go home and the next morning, Bob would shake his head because I was back in wanting to do it. And I remember Bob and and Kathy and, and myself, we went out and met with all the general managers and, and just doggedly went after this program. And the end result is one of the most iconic pictures of those games. When you see Cityscape with all these big, inspiring pictures of athletes on its on its on the sides, there's not an Olympic logo in it. There, you know, it's just big art murals of of athletes. But it became an icon. But it was exceptionally challenging to do. Every building over three stories either said yes, you may hang hang a banner. Or no, we will we will prohibit anyone else from hanging a banner, and we had to get all of those before we said go. Uh, I had no idea that it was that challenging. I knew that um, uh, you know some elements uh, were, were challenging, but I really appreciate you shedding additional light on that from an outsider's perspective. You know, as, and as a and as a permanent resident of the Salt Lake Valley. I don't think that the Salt Lake City skyline at that time was the most exciting skyline, right? You didn't have a lot of iconic architecture. And so the cityscape program, to me, really made the city beautiful and striking and interesting, uh, much more so than if just the structures themselves were there. So I, I give you enormous credit for coming up with this this iconic program. I just wouldn't let it die. I don't take any credit for the idea. I just wouldn't let it die. It was such a good idea. We <laughs> had to make it happen. Bob and his team came up with the idea. They they came up with the art. Libby Highland and her team shot the base photography and photoshopped all that. I just wouldn't let it die. That was such a uh, it, it it created such a beautiful vista for the city and and if you look at metals plaza it was framed to create this cathedral of champions around metals plaza those all those banners were designed to be seen from metals plaza so it all was working together but it was just too good of an idea not to have happen i I, that was my contribution is i just i might have said no to bob at at seven or eight o'clock at night when we were finishing our day but i came in the next day and said i changed my mind we're still doing it well, I, I congratulate you and your team for it then. I'll give a collective congratulations. One other thing that I've brought up on a, a few episodes of the podcast, on the very first episode of this podcast, I said that my favorite memory of the games, my goosebump moment, was driving early morning during games time down, you know, from my house down to headquarters or to a venue and seeing the rings on the mountain. Yeah. And so... I'm wondering if you can tell us just a little bit of the story behind the Olympic rings up on the mountain. And I've asked a couple of other people for their perspectives as well, but I really like to hear yours because for me personally, it was, it it was a a really important thing uh, for me to see those rings up on the mountain. You know, it, it was, it was 
just an iconic moment, a simple idea. I, I wanna, I'll tell you about my chills moment too, Christian. I, I loved the, the Olympic rings. We, you know, we were at a point in the games where Mitten Fraser the, and Mark Lewis, the sponsorship program was going well. And I think Brett Hopkins had dubbed me the chief spending officer at this point. The CFO was always worried that I was pitching new ideas. We had a bit of sponsorship money, potential of a surplus. And and the chief spending officer, Mitt, Mitt and Fraser said, you know, come and tell us some of your ideas. We got we think we might have a surplus. You know, what what else would you do? And it was kind of a late, one of the final big things we added to the games was the rings. Um, uh, and we, we probably wouldn't have got there in the early days, look at the games when there wasn't a lot of money. Um, you know, it just was something that would have gotten squeezed out. But we, we, we I remember going into Mitt's office and kind of saying, you know, we need a big Olympic ring. Sydney had done one on their bridge and, and we need a big Olympic rings. I just pointed out the window and said, we should do it right there. And straight out of his window, which right over the state Capitol. Um, and that's where we did it. It was a simple idea. We, we planted a stake in the middle of the ground. We, we pulled it out a certain number of feet. We traced a circle and we strung construction light all the way around in a series of concentric circles, wove those into the rings, dropped a generator in the middle. A crew actually lived up there running the generator, tending to it through the period of games because you couldn't get to it. I, I think snowmobiles or whatever got them up there at the time, but they ran it and, and kept it going. And, and I remember we tested it one night in the middle of the night, and it was early morning. We, we only lit up one ring, but no one knew we were going to do it. We, we revealed it when the torch got to the state capitol the night before the opening ceremony. Tested it a few week, nights before, a few weeks before. And one of, I think, KSL's helicopter, news helicopter was up. And all of a sudden they saw a ring and we saw them careen their camera over to it and start to fly toward it. And I immediately turned it off. We didn't let them get it. Um, did it, did it let, didn't let them get a good shot, but but they came back a few nights later and saw it. And it, it was part of Light the Fire Within and inspiration and having this big, powerful, you know, graphical image of the Olympic Games. This special thing is in this very special place, Salt Lake City, and and kind of immortalizing that in our in our um, collective memory. Right, I remember it so well. Well, I really appreciate you shedding some additional light on that. I, it, to me, they were they were inspiring. I really love seeing those rings up there. All right, looking down my list of questions, I had a day in the life question. So, what does the director ceremonies do during games time? What's your life like? I mean, are you just like running around like a chicken with your head cut off, or uh, by the time the opening ceremonies are done, can you relax a little bit, or are you just right back into it, getting ready for closing? I mean, what was it like during games time for you? You know. Ceremonies function. It's it's it goes live. It it becomes operational almost before any of the other functional areas because we start rehearsals and and those rehearsals build and build and build. But we're basically at peak output, you know, a month before the games, you know, with a very heavy schedule and and rehearsals, multiple rehearsals, every big evening rehearsals. And, and so I remember, you know, I basically moved my office to Rice Eccles in the 
final period, you know, we had a, a, a space up on the press level and, you know, we would, I would go around, do the organizing committee things in the day, uh, and then always turn up at the rehearsal at night. Um, I was making notes for the production team for Don and on behalf of the organizing committee, kind of tracking our creative notes that we wanted them to work on. Um, and, and so our peak delivery was when we were putting the decorations up and, and look at the games up in the weeks before and, and putting the, you know, the ceremony together and all the rehearsals of that and Libby's team and all of her work in kind of design, you know, and, and publications, all that was leading up to the games. When the games hit, everyone was enjoying the, the fruits of all that labor. And so my, my period in the games was, was amazing. At least the closing did pick up in the second week, but the first week was, was just a celebration of, of all the hard work and all the, the things that, that, you know, all these brilliant people had done and, and a chance to, to do that. I used to say what all I did during the first week of the game is run around and thank people and apologize. Cause I remember I pushed them pretty darn hard to get there. Um, but it was just an epic period in Salt Lake. I'll never forget it. Uh, Scott, I hope you'll indulge me here and uh, forgive me for asking a question that may not, it, it wasn't necessarily on my list, but the uh, opening uh, ceremony yeah. was was a very emotional ceremony following the heels of 9-11. Several people have talked about the flag being brought out. I'm just curious if you can give us a, a sense of the approach that you wanted to take with that ceremony and how the uh, tragedy of 9-11 impacted it. You know, the remembering back to that time, 9-11 you know, was a, a scar on our nation's psyche. It was affecting us in such a profound way. And I remember that the torch relay kind of was the beginning of a groundswell. We saw it going through the country, coming west, coming west, and this kind of wave of optimism that was going with it. And and that torch relay was bringing that optimism to Salt Lake. And then the culmination of the relay is the ceremony, the opening ceremony. And, and so here we had, you know, all of this power of the emotion coming and, and the world trade center flag was my chill moment of the games. And I, and I think it was for many other people. And I was right in the thick of that. There's, there's a story to that flag. Um, the, the, flag was originally destined to walk at the end of the USOC, uh, at the, the delegates, the, the uh, U.S. team. And, you know, that is expressly forbidden by the IOC. They don't like gestures of, you know, big nationalized gestures in the parade of athletes. All the athletes are equals, e- even though those are our athletes, the American athletes, but, but in the Olympic, they're all Olympians and they're all the same. And so the IOC came, got, whiff of, got wind of this and came in and said, we got a problem, you know, USOC, we don't want the, the flag being carried at the end of the parade of athletes because the U.S. team was last. It would have been the last statement, the last thing. And, and yes, it was an you know, unbelievable national event for, for America, but the... IOC, in their judgment, didn't want that to have 
um, you know, an image, a, a nation's flag. So I got this problem. What do we do with the flag? And I remember getting into it with the, the chef de mission at the, at the time. And we, we said, let us use that in the ceremony. And Don and Kenny Ortega, the director of the ceremony, helped me stage it. But we had a, a national anthem, a version. We had recorded a version, and it kind of changed in the middle. And having that moment where the eight Olympians, uh, U.S. athletes, the USOC selected them, carry the flag out and see that moment where our country did get, you know, we through such tragedy, we had, um, you know, such a, a coming together as a country in that moment when that flag was in the middle of those eight Olympians that represented our hope and, 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 you know, our, our aspirations to come together as a, as a country, we played our national anthem and of course, we, we raised the flag up the, the main flagpole. It was an absolute chill. And, and I'm listening to this. I'm in the control room and Don Misher is running the show at the time. And I just remember him playing it. And we finished the national anthem. At, or I'm sorry, and I should say the athletes came out and they walked out and he's ready to play the anthem. And he just said, I remember him just in a hushed voice on the the communication system we had just saying, hold, hold, hold. He let a moment of silence come in that wasn't planned. And it was, it was beautiful because we got to see this flag come out and unfurl and, and kind of be billowed by the wind carried by the Olympians. And we just saw, you know, the promise of the country. And from that moment, um, you know, the national anthem happened and, and I think from that moment, we were able to start to move on from 9-11. Still a tragedy in our history, but we were able to move move on, celebrate the games, celebrate the promise that they bring. And and I think it was, was um, you know, enormously profound. I, I have a chill just even talking about it because I remember where I was and what I was doing at that particular time. And I think it was very, very special. It absolutely was very, very special. Several people have commented about how quiet it got in the stadium. Uh, so quiet that you could hear the helicopter. Yeah, above. nothing. Um, it was a, it was a seminal nothing. moment. Nothing. You couldn't hear. There wasn't a voice, a cough, uh, nothing. It was just silence. And that was so profoundly powerful, that silence. And that wasn't planned. That happened in the moment when the magic was, was going on. All right. I'm going to ask one more question. That's again, this is very indulgent of me uh, and I apologize for that, but you mentioned the bare naked ladies you assembled or newer team assembled a lot of great talent, uh, talent that came in and performed in the opening ceremonies and the closing ceremonies, as well as the medals plaza for Olympic and Paralympic games. And I'm just curious what the thought process is uh, when you look at bringing on talent to perform at uh, an Olympic ceremony, you know, we were we were just unrelentingly driven to make every possible thing the best it could be at that moment, and we 
we as a team, you know, Mitt wanted the best ceremony. Um, you know, Fraser wanted the best of everything, the best look at the games, the, the best venues, the best sport presentation, the best, the best, the best. We knew the talent we had had to simply be the best. We didn't pay any of our talent. There was an honorarium for their expenses, um, but it was, you know, it was pennies compared to what the artists earn. Um, you know, we covered their expenses to get them to Salt Lake and accommodations and enjoy a bit of the games. Um, but we didn't pay anybody. But it was just kind of the logical thing. If everything's going to be the best that it can be of that moment, you know, uh, then we needed the best talent. And, and we wanted to, at Metals Plaza, we had 16 consecutive performances. You know, we did uh, 15 nights between opening and closing and the kind of a Sunday brunch before the closing ceremony. And we had 16 consecutive performances that of the day were the biggest artists of, of the time. And, and we, you know, we brought Sting and Yo-Yo Ma into the opening ceremony and, and, you know, we just wanted to have the best and there was just no compromise in, in that. And, and kind of when we started to attract the first couple really big names, uh, I think Dave Matthews was one of the very first that signed on. Um, I can't remember. There were four or five in the, in the early tranche, but he was one of the first. Then it became something that the other artists said, wow, I want to be a part of that. Let's go to Salt Lake. And we were able to attract a, an amazing group. Well, and aside from all of that, the the headline talent, um, there was a lot of local talent involved, of course, in the cast members and things like that. And and uh, I'm just curious about uh, what that was like having to do all these auditions and everything and select uh, thousands of uh, local cast members and performers and artists. Yeah, it, w- it was amazing. We we had, I remember we had a joint casting pr- regime. We had it. Because because I looked after the ceremonies in general, we had casting for everything, whether it was atmosphere performances at the sport venues to opening ceremony. And people were invited, individuals, groups were invited to come in and, and audition. And, you know, and some magic things happened. There was a acapella uh, group. I, I don't remember the, the guys, a handful of guys that came in. And, and they sang, they, they sang, you know, kind of barbershop style acapella. And it was so good. They, they were put in the opening ceremony, uh, in the pioneer segment. And we created a moment for them because they were just so extraordinary. And it was talent from Salt Lake that came in, uh, the child of white, the young, young boy that was the iconic child of white came, came through that process. So many people came through the auditions. There is a, a vocal tradition and a, and, uh, and a big kind of volunteeristic tradition in, in the culture of Salt Lake. And we tapped that and, and invited people to perform. And, and to me, they created, you know, part of the, the magic of, of those games. It might even be an atmosphere performer that you saw at a, a sport venue. We would deploy you know, performing groups out to to make that queue, that wait in line to get through the security queue pleasant uh, and enjoyable. You know, there were just there were just so many different people and it was a reflection of the community. And and that's really what we aim to do is to try to engage everyone that that <laughs> that we could possibly engage in the performances. And uh, 
and, and reflect the city that we're in and the beautiful people of Salt Lake. Well, um, I've uh, totally exceeded my welcome. I've gone way over our time <laughs> limit and I appreciate you indulging me. You don't apologize at all because uh, I'm the one asking all of these extra questions that were not planned and you have uh, very, very gamely answered them. And I really appreciate that. So uh, we'll let you wrap up here in my, in my wrap up. I basically have two components to it. Um, the game's end. And everybody kind of goes on with their lives and goes and does different things. So I'm wondering if you can just uh, give us a, a brief glimpse into the life after slot uh, for Scott Givens. And then uh, along with that, um, three pieces of advice that you've learned along the way that could have been things that you learned in Salt Lake or maybe you learned them on other projects. But they've become kind of the guiding principles for you, whether those are personal things or professional things that could be potentially helpful to other people. Sure. So, so. Well, uh, life after Slock, I got to say, Salt Lake 2002 was as good as it gets. Um, the team we had, the people we worked with, uh, there was the, the, the opportunity that I had as a, as a creative professional to impact those games and have a role in the games. It was just as good as it gets. Um, my next chapter after Salt Lake, I, I, um, worked on the legacy programs for a little bit. And then I, I worked at Disney and I ran the 50th anniversary at Disneyland um, over in Anaheim, which was also an iconic, uh, amazing celebration. And then we started five currents out of that in 2005. And now 21 billion people, 21 billion people have seen the shows we've created. Um, it's kind of amazing when we think about it, but it all started for me back in Salt Lake. And I, I come back and I want to come back and I come back to ski. Um, anytime you, I, I'll, I'm welcome. I, I love that time in my history. So, so, you know, life goes on, but, uh, for me, so many amazing things started in Salt Lake and so many people on that journey in Salt Lake are still part of my life today, which is, which is part of the fun. Uh, three things of advice. Um, I'll, I'll take the one from it, one from Fraser, one from me. Um, first from it, uh, hire and empower wickedly talented people. Um, just simply don't compromise. Hire super smart people. Let them do what they do. I said it earlier, but as a summary, uh, from Fraser, um, watch the details. Go deep when you need to, but fundamentally trust what people, uh, you know, do what they do and fundamentally trust. If people feel trusted, they will uh, exceed your expectations. They will go to, to places you can never imagine. And third, it's something I work on, but I try to keep connected and open. I, I, we all get super busy. Um, and, and, but, you know, it's a joy to have these relationships, to have gone through a period like Salt Lake that kind of battle-hardened us and and to have so many of those relationships still spanning time and part of my life from that pressure cooker that was you know back in 2002 to what we do today um, you know you, you just need to remain connected and open and life's a journey um, you know it's been a fun one to to have Salt Lake be an iconic part of my journey and and I hear you guys want a games. Uh, I, I'm happy to come back and volunteer if you guys get another games one of these days. I, I think so many of us would do it again in a heartbeat. 
Well, I think there's a tremendous amount of enthusiasm to get the band back together again, right? Led by Frazier right now, who's been championing the cause to get another games here in Salt Lake City. And I'm sure uh, I'm sure there would be places. I hope that there will be places for us to to help out in that effort at some point in the future. Scott, I, I tell you what, it's been a lot of fun uh, reconnecting. It's been a while uh, since we last worked on a project together. So I really appreciate you taking the time. If people want to learn more about Five Currents and the work that they do, or they just want to reconnect with you and uh, swap stories, what's the best way for them to um, reach out and and uh, contact you through social media or other channels? You know, uh, Five Currents, we've got a website, pretty easy. Uh, when we formed the company name, I wanted something people could could spell. And, and if you mess it up, you can go to Four Currents or Three Currents. We still see you. Go to FiveCurrents.com. There is a link on there to get connected to us. Um, happy to hear from folks from the past. Um, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. If, if folks want to connect on, on business sides there. Um, but it'd be a pleasure. I, I want to keep in contact with, and you do lose contact with folks. It's been 21 years, hard to imagine since Salt Lake 2002's opening, but, um, I'd, I'd love for people to make contact and keep in contact as we go. All right. Fantastic. Scott, again, thank you so much. Listeners, please like and subscribe to our podcast and we'll catch you again soon. Scott, thank you. My pleasure, Christian. Thank you for doing this. We all love the, the work you're doing.